0: It is my honour to introduce His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI to Westminster Hall and through this fine location to the Palace of Westminster as a whole. It is the first time that a Pontiff has visited this place, a fact that alone invests today with deep historical significance. It is a measure of the distance we have come and of the dialogue which we have created over the past few decades, that an event which in years gone by would have been thought inconceivable can occur and seem wholly natural. This hall is the oldest structure of its kind in Europe and the home of many memories. It is inevitably associated with trials and condemnation to death, as was the fate of Sir Thomas More, one of my 156 predecessors as Speaker of the House of Commons, and of King Charles I, long after considered a martyr by many Anglicans. Yet it would be a mistake to think of Westminster Hall only in these terms when it has been as much a stage for robust debate as for sheer intolerance. That tradition of debate has roots far deeper than those of contemporary democracy. It was here in 1374, for example, that a notable discussion took place between three religious thinkers, a Franciscan, a Dominican and a Benedictine, on the precise relationship between the papacy and the temporal affairs of their kingdom. Suffice to say that no consensus was reached on that occasion. Nevertheless, it is the right to ask such questions and to deliberate on the merits of alternative answers that makes for freedom. Naturally, Parliament contains members with a wide range of views on great ethical issues. However, as is well known, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, over decades, have taken positions on social, scientific and sexual issues which are markedly different from those of the Vatican. It is surely right to have robust but respectful debate on such issues within Parliament, between our institutions and throughout civil society. A very difficult past and a turbulent present need not be a barrier to an enlightened future. History means that those of us privileged to serve society as its elected representatives, arrive in this Palace of Westminster to be immediately reminded of the relationship between church and state. We are conscious of a healthy tension in this relationship as we seek to do our business. Your presence, Most Holy Father, adds to the rich tapestry of the past and provides further reason. For the many hundreds of thousands of people who come here every year to contemplate the character of this building and what has been witnessed in it. Faith is not a relic, either in political discourse or in modern society, but is embedded in its fabric. The warmth of the greeting extended by Her Majesty the Queen yesterday to the Holy Father was notable indeed. Today, in this hall, which sits at the heart of our democratic tradition, are gathered many elected members of Parliament, members of the House of Lords, and numerous other distinguished guests from all walks of life and all parts of the United Kingdom. On behalf of everyone here, I warmly welcome you and invite you to address us.
1: Mr. Speaker, thank you for your words of welcome on behalf of this distinguished gathering. As I address you, I am conscious of the privilege afforded me to speak to the British people and their representatives in Westminster Hall, a building of unique significance in the civil and political history of the people of these islands. Allow me also to express my esteem for the parliament which has existed on this side for centuries and which has had such a profound influence on the development of participative government among the nations, especially in the Commonwealth in the English speaking world at large. Your common law tradition serves as a basis of legal systems in many parts of the world, and your particular vision of the respective rights and duties of the state and the individual, and of the separation of powers remains an inspiration to many across the globe. As I speak to you in this historic setting, I think of the countless men and women down the centuries who have played their part in the momentous events that have taken place within these walls and have shaped the lives of many generations of Britons and others besides. In particular, I recall the figure of St. Thomas More, the great English scholar and statesman who is admired by believers and non-believers alike for the integrity with which he followed his conscience, even at the cost of displeasing the sovereign whose good servant he was, because he chose to serve God first. <coughs> the dilemma which faced more in those difficult times, the perennial question of the relationship between what is owed to Caesar and what is owed to God, Allows me the opportunity to reflect with you briefly on the proper place of religious belief within the political process. This county's parliamentary tradition owes much to the national instinct for moderation, to the desire to achieve a genuine balance between the legitimate claims of government and the rights of those subject to it. While decisive steps have been taken, At several points in your history to place limits on the exercise of power, the nation's political institutions have been able to evolve with a remarkable degree of stability. In the process, Britain has emerged as a pluralist democracy which places great value on freedom of speech, freedom of political affiliation, and respect for the rule of law, with a strong sense of the individual's rights and duties, and of the equality of all citizens before the law. While couched in different language, Catholic social teaching has much in common with its approach, in its overriding consensus of God, the unique dignity of every human person created in the image and likeness of God, and in its emphasis on the duty of civil authority to foster the common good And yet, the fundamental questions at stake in Thomas More's trial continue to present themselves in ever-changing terms as new social conditions emerge. Each generation, as it seeks to advance the common good, must ask anew what are the requirements that governments may reasonably impose upon citizens, and how far do they extend? appeal to what authority can moral dilemmas be resolved? These questions take us directly to the ethical foundations of civil discourse. If the moral principles underpinning the democratic process are themselves determined by nothing more solid than social consensus, then the fragility of the processes becomes all too evident. Herein lies a real challenge for democracy. The inadequacy of pragmatic, short-term solutions to complex social and ethical problems has been illustrated all too clearly by the recent global financial crisis. There is widespread agreement that the lack of a solid ethical foundation for economic activity has contributed to the grave difficulties now being experienced by millions of people throughout the world. Just as every economic decision has a moral consequence, so too in the political field. The ethical dimension of policy has far-reaching consequences that no government can afford to ignore. A positive illustration of this is found on one of the British Parliament's particular noble achievements, the abolition of the slave trade. The campaign that led to this landmark legislation was built upon firm ethical principles rooted in the natural law, and it has made a contribution to civilization of which this nation may be justly proud. The central question at issue, then, is this. Where is the ethical foundation for political choices to, to be found? The Catholic tradition maintains that the objective norms governing right right action are accessible to reason, presiding from the content of revelation. According to this understanding, the role of religion in political debate is not so much to supply these norms as if they could not be known by non-believers, still as to propose concrete political solutions which would lie altogether outside the competence of religion, but rather to help purify and shed light upon the application of reason to the discovery of objective moral principles. This corrective role of religion vis-a-vis reason is not always welcomed, so partly because distorted forms of religion, such as sectarianism and fundamentalism, can be seen to create serious social problems themselves. And in their turn, the distortions of religion arise when insufficient attention is given to the purifying structure and role of reason within religion. It is a two-way process. Without the corrective supplied by religion, so, reason too can fall fall prey to distortions as when it is manipulated by ideology or applied in a partial way, they fail to take full account of the dignity of the human person. Such misuse of reason, after all, was that gave rise to the slave trade in the first place and to many other social evils, not least the totalitarian ide- ideologies of the 20th century. This is why I would suggest the world of reason and the world of faith, the world of secular rationality, and the world of religious belief, need one another and should not be afraid to enter into profound and ongoing dialogue for the good of our civilization. Religion, in other words, is not a problem for legislators to solve, but a vital contributor to the national conversation. In this light, I cannot but voice my concern at the increasing marginalisation of religion, particularly of Christianity, that is taking place in some quarters, even in nations which place a great emphasis on tolerance. There are those who would advocate that the voice of religion be silenced, or at least relegated to the purely private sphere. There are those who argue that the public celebration of festivals, such as Christmas, should be discouraged in the questionable belief that it might somehow offend those of other religions or none. And there are those who argue, paradoxically, with the intention of eliminating discrimination, that Christians in public roles should be required at times to act against their conscience. There are worrying signs of a failure to appreciate not only the rights of believers to freedom of conscience, and freedom of religion, but also the legitimate role of religion in the public square. I would invite all of you, therefore, within your respective spheres of influence, to seek ways of promoting and encouraging dialogue between faith and reason at every level of national life. Your readiness to do so is already implied in the unprecedented invitation extended to me today and it finds expression in the field of concern in which your government has been engaged with the Holy See. In the area of peace, there have been exchanges regarding the elaboration of an international arms treaty. <coughs> regarding human rights, the Holy See and the United Kingdom have welcomed the spread of democracy, especially in the last 65 years. In the field of development, there's been collaboration on debt relief, fair trade, and financing for development, particularly through the International Finance Facility, the International Immunization Fund, and the Advanced Market Commitment. The policy also looks forward to exploring with the United Kingdom new ways to promote environment responsibility to the benefit of all. I also note that the present government has committed the United Kingdom to devoting 0.7% of national income development aid by 2013. In recent years, it has been encouraging to witness the positive signs of a worldwide growth in solidarity towards the poor. But to turn this solidarity into effective action calls for fresh thinking. That will improve life conditions in many important areas, such as food production, clean water, job creation, education, support of families, especially migrants, and basic health care. Where human lives are concerned, time is always short. Yet the world has witnessed the vast resources that governments can draw upon the rescue financial institution deemed too big to fail. Surely the integral human development of the world's peoples is no less important. It is an enterprise worthy of the world's attention that is truly too big to fall. The overview of present cooperation between the United Kingdom and the Holy See illustrates well how much progress has been made in the years that have passed since the establishment of bilateral diplomatic relations in promoting throughout the world the many core values that we share. I hope and pray that this relationship will continue to bear fruit and that it will be mirrored in a growing acceptance of the need for dialogue and respect at every level of society between the world of reason and the world of faith. I am convinced that within this country, too, there are many areas in which the Church and the public authorities can work together for the good of citizens in harmony with this Parliament's historic practice of invoking the Spirit's guidance upon those who seek to improve the condition of all mankind. For such cooperation to be possible, religious bodies, including institutions linked to the Catholic Church, need to be free to act in accordance with their own principles and specific convictions based upon the faith and the official teaching of the Church. In this way, such basic rights as religious freedom, freedom of conscience, and freedom of association will be guaranteed. The answers looking down us from the magnificent ceiling of this ancient hall remind us of the long tradition from which British parliamentary democracy has evolved. They remind us that God is constantly watching over us to guide and protect us, and they summon us to acknowledge the vital contribution that religious belief (coughs) can remind us that God is uh, constantly watching over us to guide and protect us, and summon us to acknowledge the vital contribution that religious belief has made and can continue to make to the life of this nation. Mr. Speaker, I thank you once again for this opportunity briefly to address the distinguished audience. Let me assure you, and the Lord Speaker, of my continued good wishes and prayers for you, and for the fruitful work of both houses of this ancient Parliament. Thank you, and God bless you all.
2: Your Holiness, it is my privilege today to thank you on behalf of everyone here, parliamentarians and non-parliamentarians alike, for your presence at Westminster and for the way in which you have spoken to us about issues that are important and challenging to us all. You spoke with great generosity about the United Kingdom and about the Westminster Parliament, its contribution over centuries to the fight for human rights and for justice, and we are enormously grateful for those generous words. You spoke, too, about the role of faith in contemporary society. In the House of Lords, we much appreciate the religious voices that take part in, essentially, political debates. Those religious voices come from the most reverend primate and his fellow bishops, of course, but they come from members of other faiths as well, from Jews and from Muslims, from Hindus and from Sikhs, and they take their place along with the views of those who do not come from faith backgrounds or communities and it is that diversity of voices that perhaps instils in us that ethos so central to parliamentary debate of respect and the ability to listen to those with divergent views, an issue which you have stressed so much in your visit here today. But for me, perhaps the most important and long-standing thing that I will take from what you said, was the need for an ethical foundation as each and every one of us approaches the complexities and the difficult issues facing us as individuals as communities and facing the world today. The seeking of that ethical dimension, the need to have a moral approach based on fundamental values, that is a challenge for each and every one of us, whatever our backgrounds and whatever our beliefs. Your Holiness, it has been a privilege for all of us to listen to you today. It has been a truly memorable occasion and we hope that your visit to the United Kingdom will equally be a memorable event for you. Once again, our thanks and our best wishes for the rest of your visit to this country. Thank you.